0: What's up, guys, and welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network. Binge Mode made its grand return earlier this month, and Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion are deep-diving on the Star Wars franchise, covering every movie, the newly-released Disney Plus series The Mandalorian, and fan-favorite characters. You can check out new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And up on the site, we have more Mandalorian coverage, written by Micah Peters, Allison Herman, and Ben Lindberg, as well as staff-wide surveys throughout the season. You can check it all out on TheRinger.com. Welcome to Jam Session. I'm Juliette Littman. I'm Amanda Dobbins. Book Club Week. It's becoming my favorite week of the month, Amanda. It's really exciting. Turns out you and I, two people who love celebrity, also love celebrity memoirs. <laughs> uh, this month we read Jane Fonda's My Life So Far, and I May Never Be the Same Again. I'm really excited to talk about it, which we will. But before that, we've got some celebrity business to address. We wanted to get into this Justin Timberlake controversy, him in New Orleans. We want to talk about Brad Pitt and Aaliyah Shockat, and of course, we got to follow up on Prince Andrew. So uh, let's start there. Last time we spoke, it was after the interview had aired, like 72 hours later, but he had not yet made his announcement that he was going to step back from royal duties, which he has since. And we are hypothesizing on the way forward. And I don't think I thought this was possible, though I thought it was the right thing for him to do. Amanda, did you see this coming? I really didn't. This is pretty
1: unprecedented. I They basically—we said he, quote, stepped back because that is what, like, the statements that Prince Andrew released via all the official channels said. But my man was fired. My man was fired from being a member of a family, which is pretty hard to do. And it's especially hard to do in the royal family because— In addition to the basic sense of in order to protect their position, they need to um, never quit because as soon as people are quitting, then it's like, why can't everybody quit? We don't really need you guys. But they take it particularly seriously ever since the abdication, which was dramatized in season one of The Crown in Flashbacks and also the King's speech and, you know, many other things. But the royal family itself is like, we
0: do this till we die. That's what we do. Yeah. And it's come out since it's been strong. There's there's no like official word, but many outlets are reporting that while on tour in New Zealand, Prince Charles really strongly advocated for this to happen, and it seems like the final straw among many problems was there was a debate last week between um, Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, and one of the questions in the debate was about the monarchy. And as soon as the monarchy is up for debate, they have to write the ship, which is actually also happening in season three of The Crown. Yes. It, it has been really fascinating to watch
1: season three of The Crown as the Prince Andrew stuff plays out. Um, Chris Ryan and I have been doing recaps on The Watch, and we talked a bit about it. But, you know, this central issue or concern for the monarchy since the abdication, since all the things that have been dramatized on the crown, since Diana, everything else is like, we have to protect our existence. We are imperiled. And right. they definitely are. As And we just, we've discussed this before, even before last week. I think Prince Andrew was kind of the most obvious example of why do we have these people anymore? This doesn't make any sense in the modern world. But they are like particularly concerned with no one ever kind of waking up and thinking about the fact that taxpayers pay a lot of money for people to live in palaces and be considered of a higher rank than everybody else. And you're completely right. As soon as it becomes in the political sphere and as soon as people have to start, politicians have to start weighing in, they they have to do something drastic. I do think there is something Shakespearean about it being Prince Charles who is protecting his own throne by like throwing his brother under the bus.
0: And there's always been, like, this narrative, or maybe it's just in my head, but I think there's always been this narrative that Charles, it's, like, mad that he's had to live so much of his life with his mother so alive and therefore not king.
1: Dude, he's had to live 70 years. I feel like yeah. that's an amazing thing about watching this season of The Crown, and I won't spoil it because I know you're you're on your way to the Prince Charles stuff, you being Juliet. Yeah. But I— It's amazing watching it and his anxiety about not being king when he's like twenty. My man is seventy now. Fifty years he's been waiting.
0: Yeah, and you know something interesting about that is I. There's been a couple of like really good articles that have been going around, and we'll put them in the show notes of real estate right now. And there's one from Town and Country magazine that came out a couple days ago. And it sort of talked through the PR crisis of this. And one thing that's come up over the last few years is as the family has grown with the queen remaining at the top of it, there used to be like one family press office Mm -hmm. and they would have a few people that worked in it. But now there's basically four family press offices. There's Buckingham Palace, which is the queen. There's Clarence House, which is Charles and Camilla. There's Kensington Palace, which is Will and Kate. And then there's Windsor Palace, which is Harry and Meghan. And then on top of that, there's all of the other royals. There's Andrew, there's the House of York and his kids, and then like the other like associated people as well. And it's sort of become much harder for the family collectively to manage because there's sort of like four different tracks happening here. And this article also mentioned that Anne was really wise in declining titles for her kids because it kind of avoided some of these problems and made her, like, a less problematic member of the family. And and basically, everyone's sort of like, where's mine? And that has led to a lot of these problems. Uh, It's just kind of fascinating. Yes. There's definitely always been that kind of
1: family civil war between, you know, Andrew gets this and Charles wants this. And then I think even a little bit, like, the, the Harry and William tension that we're not supposed to talk about since they, quote, deny it or don't deny it, is, I think, a little bit of... About the fact that this family like actually has ranks built into it. They, yeah. they they all have like status, and this person gets to be this, and this person gets this. And the tension that comes from that. I think another thing is also, as you said, it is pretty decentralized in terms of their press offices. There's a really great Guardian article that we'll share. But I thought this was a great point, which is that Buckingham Palace in particular, the quote is from um a source, but it's there's a lack of discipline there at the moment. Sir Christopher Guy, the Queen's private secretary from 2007 to 2017, was a real steadying hand, but he's not there now. So it's kind of unique circumstances of the person who would have been in control for the Queen of being like, we need to manage this, is no longer there. The other thing that I want to read from this source uh, is about Andrew himself. <laughs> And it just is, Andrew is a bit of a plonker. Everybody knows that, said <laughs> one source close to the palace. There's no way he should have been allowed to do that interview. They should have just sent him off to Australia. That would have been a bloody good idea, out of sight of Adam mine. So it's a little bit of the palace being out of it and this institution kind of being creaking and increasingly showing its age and also Andrew just being a dummy. In addition to a person who can't take responsibility for his... Uh, inappropriate at best behavior and criminal at worst.
0: The The Daily Mail has started reporting, I don't know if this is true, but they have written that Princess Beatrice is really upset because she was one of the people who like brokered this interview and like advised for it. And that's come out like basically like over a week later. It used to be, the first story was the queen, that he told the queen it went well and she was on board. That's been walked back. And I just feel like is Princess Beatrice being turned into the, the fall woman here? And I'm like, I don't know if that's, that's messed up if she is. I mean, even if true.
1: That is really tough. The only kind of chess move that I can see there is that I, I did read reports that it puts Princess Beatrice's wedding at yeah. risk because yeah. obviously Princess Eugenie got married about six months after Harry and Meghan and Andrew agitated for the full royal wedding treatment, which Juliet watched twice on BBC America. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that probably will not be afforded to Beatrice. And I think yeah. it as soon as he quit that was kind of off the table for her, but I do wonder if they can kind of, if she has to take some responsibility or they make her the fall person, then it's easier to explain away the getting rid of the wedding. Right.
0: Right. And there's also been a lot of speculation on how they'll continue to afford their lifestyles, which, you know, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of papers have referenced the fact that he was getting 329,000 pounds per year. From taxpayer money which is obviously a huge amount of money like that's an extremely generous salary but considering how much the royal family spends every year like that's like a drop in the bucket mm-hmm. so it's not like he was living off of that money you know right I think the question is like will he be will people be willing to be seen with him like will he still get invited to the same parties he was invited to and it's just it's really pretty wild and I will say the Daily Mail just has piled on like to a pretty ridiculous degree, they just had one article. Not that, not that he doesn't like. You know, I think he seems like a jackass. Like, like, like you said, illegal or not, he just seems like a jackass. And they had one article that was just like over twenty photos of Andrew like at parties, not necessarily like partying. Like, you know, you can't say it's just photos, but like him at at parties, like in San Tropez and in New York and in London, and it's just so unbecoming. This whole episode is really bad for the monarchy. Really, really bad.
1: And and it couldn't be at a worse time because yeah. they are really—the queen is getting on in years. And, she, you know, she might live for another decade. Her mother lived to be over 100. But they are, as much as they can, transitioning it to the next generation and trying to establish some sort of line of continuity so people are willing to accept Charles and eventually William as king. I I really honestly— Don't know if that will happen. It seems so bizarre because the queen has been queen for so long. But for people to be reminded at this moment of all the drawbacks and all the limitations of these people um, and the fact that also that they can be disappeared from royal life so easily. It's like if you didn't if no one notices that Andrew's gone, we didn't need him in the first place. Well, then why were we giving him three hundred and something pounds, a thousand pounds a year?
0: I have to say, as much as we love the royal family and love following them, if I were a British taxpayer, I would definitely not love them. I would just be like, what are you doing for me, really? I think that's true. I
1: think my only thing is—and we've talked about this before—the idea that there is a ceremonial office and then, like, an actual governing office— the separation makes sense to me. A lot of countries do it.
0: I will say that the Crown, this season three, I think in particular has done a really good job of showing what it means to be the monarch when it's ceremonial and not functional.
1: Yes, and I think that the Crown, the show, will continue to do that. There's a interesting another Guardian piece that was written about it was behind the scenes, the making of the Crown, um, and it was released before season three. But uh, someone in it, I believe Helen Bonham Carter, talks about how the Charles character in season three of the Crown is like the best possible PR that real life Charles could have because it makes him sympathetic and explains a lot of events from his point of view that were maybe previously explained by the tabloids. And I think that there is something there on a larger scale for this show itself does a great job of, you know, giving these people backstories and explaining some of their more opaque motivations and their weird way of life which is funny i i wonder peter morgan claims he's not a royalist i someone shared that with me on twitter after me being like peter morgan definitely a royalist but I, you know i do think it's interesting to watch this show and this phenomenon and and a lot of ways the show is serving as like british history it's not yeah. that it it's peter morgan's attempt to do like the history plays that shakespeare did for you know henry the 4th and 5th and 6th so that is all a I guess a justification for it it certainly gives people interest in in the UK and it certainly gives people something to talk about besides Brexit and everything that's going wrong. So <laughs> I understand that's maybe what they're doing. Does it does that justify like letting a bunch of people who are, are really rich by birth continue to to live in this privileged position? I don't know. It was just so weird that William will one baby, be King. Who are we kidding?
0: If we make it that far, yeah, great point. Hopefully, we will. <laughs> um, just a truly shocking time to be a royal watcher, and really just unprecedented. We'll we'll always remember this. Also, yeah, I mean, there's just the, it's such a rich story. And it's also horrible, of course. Like, I think one thing that, like, I, I keep forgetting at the heart of this is, like, questions of sex trafficking and statutory rape. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, tabloids in general and celebrity in general often obscure, like, what it's at the heart of the matter. When I'm like, God, I can't believe this story, I, like, keep reminding myself, like, ultimately this is really grisly and terrible. It is. So.
1: And it's a good thing to point out because we just spent 20 minutes talking about what does this mean for, like, an institution or whatever. But this is ultimately a lot of young women the scope of this and even our institutions and, and media or whatnot are find ways to not actually talk about it because it is so difficult to talk about. But yeah, but that is
0: what's at stake. It's true. All right, let's move on. Next item, also unsavory, but not nearly as bad. Justin Timberlake was seen over the weekend. Actually, it was on Thursday night. So it's a few days ago on a balcony on in the second floor of a bar on Bourbon Street. Uh, holding hands and and sitting very closely and intimately with one of his co-stars, Alicia Wainwright, and he was not wearing his wedding ring. And now there's a lot of questions. Mm. Amanda, did you find this surprising?
1: I can't say that I was surprised. I have no knowledge of anything going on with Justin Timberlake. Jessica. No, nor do I. This Real. is this is pure. This is tabloid this is fodder. Me reading some unsourced gossip columns. So this is I know nothing. But. I do feel that every so often in a blind gossip situation, they pop up as like, hmm, what's going on there? I will also say that I haven't really seen those people together in public in a long time.
0: Good point. They've been talking about each other, but that's basically it. Yeah. So
1: very true. You know, on the other hand, like, you go to New Orleans, you're on Bourbon Street. I'm not sure what else anyone else expects to happen. It's, <laughs> it's it's kind of like we're choosing our situations here and then right. the inevitable happens
0: well I'm glad you brought that up is New Orleans a safe space for celebrities remember when Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie had their house there yes well
1: because Brad Pitt and Matthew was like, McConaughey right Brad Pitt was trying to build homes post Katrina and that really didn't work out Yeah. Um, no I guess so I don't know it doesn't really seem like New Orleans has the intense paparazzi cover that other places do so in that sense more can happen I mean this is the thing if Justin Timberlake hadn't been on Bourbon Street I know one street in New Orleans it's Bourbon Street go around the corner and you're probably yeah. okay just also don't be literally on a balcony above Bourbon Street I, I yeah. don't know it's it's not smart choices
0: yeah according to an article on E they are downplaying everything and trying to laugh it off as nothing, but it was definitely inappropriate and something that would make any wife uncomfortable. He had too much to drink and got carried away. Perhaps that's true. And hopefully for everyone, that is the case. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Justin Timberlake, Amanda, do we wish him well? We wish you well. We wish Justin Timberlake and Jessica Biel well,
1: and we probably won't be checking in on this uh, very much more. No, I don't really care about them. Yeah, that's we wish them well. We, yeah. and you know what? I also, uh, I also wish Alicia Rain- Wainwright well. I wish everyone well. I hope that you have a nice Thanksgiving and that the tabloids aren't in your faces. And good luck.
0: Yeah. See you guys. Okay. Next, another really good rumor going around. Brad Pitt dating Alia Shockett. who I know. But they're not dating. That's the thing. They're Yes. <laughs> they're not dating. I know her from uh, Arrested Development, of course, his cousin mm-hmm. maybe. But I think the other thing that I really think of when I think about her is she did another show Search Party, which I heard is very good, though I didn't watch it. She once famously told a story about someone going down on her at a party and how that this person, like, brought her a razor to, like, shave her vagina beforehand. Oh, my God. (laughs) Do you you remember this? of course I remember this story. This is up there with the headphones story, uh, which—sorry, spoiler alert. And— my main takeaway when I read this was like, "Huh, Alia Shacket's really good at getting into headlines at the right time that she needs yeah. them." That was yeah. my main takeaway. I never thought they were dating, but you know, as we know, Brad Pitt just likes to surround himself with women of ideas and of substance. Now, that's that's who Brad Pitt is. That's <laughs> so true. Who knows? I really wanted to talk about that because this because
1: I was so fascinated in like the week long like corrections department that went mm. on. I, no one thought that Brad Pitt and Alia Shacket were dating. They were seen at a couple comedy shows, but the gossip mode almost immediately, like, immediately went to, no, they're not dating. They're just friends. Brad Pitt wants to be around, like, cool people. Which I thought was hilarious. And then it was just a week of being like, did you know they're just friends? So, again, to your point, someone is really masterfully controlling the let's get the tabloids to write about this, but in exactly the way we want them to. I just also thought it was fascinating that so many people were just really interested in talking about the fact that they're not dating and they're just friends. And I know I'm the person who's always like, you know what? Let's check our sources and let's have realistic expectations of relationships between celebrities. Not everyone is suddenly getting married. Sometimes people are just hanging out or having sex or doing whatever they need to do. But it was amazing to watch everyone do this in real time. I can't explain it.
0: I can't really either. Also... Brad Pitts is obviously, like, in a new phase of his life, which is awesome. But I feel like that hasn't set in for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. There are some great photos from uh, Sunday evening when Kanye West performed a quote opera at the Hollywood Bowl, which uh, that is all we will be saying about it. But Brad Pitt and Aliyah Shakat were in attendance, as was another person. So even the Daily Mail is in on this, is which is when you know, like, is somebody paying everybody? Yeah. Because... It's Brad Pitt. Here's a headline. Brad Pitt spotted with Arrested Development's Aaliyah Shawkat again at Kanye West's opera, but she quietly sits behind him while he gets chummy with another pretty woman. And it is true that she seems to be sitting one row behind Brad Pitt. And they're like in the same little box. And they seem to have arrived together because of the 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 behind-the-scenes photos. But there are definitely a lot of photos of Brad Pitt uh,
0: macking on some other woman. What's your best guess of of why this story gets going around?
1: Well, I th- you know, I have like a cynical sociological reading, which is that people can't handle the idea that Brad Pitt would be dating Aaliyah Shawkat, who is a very beautiful, successful actress, but maybe not the doesn't look like Angelina Jolie and it right. doesn't have like a traditionally feminine ideal that people think that Brad Pitt should be dating a la Angelina Jolie and Jennifer Aniston. I mean, you know, it's just like Alicia Huckett has short hair. And I think that's the level that a lot of people are operating on. And so they're just like, no, 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 They're not dating. They're just friends, which is a bummer. And which is why I'm kind of like, wow, wouldn't it be great if they're dating? I it really be great. I've become a chaos agent on this. I really want to turn it around. <laughs> also, they just seem like they're having a great time. They're going to comedy clubs. They're going to the Kanye opera. I swear to God, I have not seen Brad Pitt photographed in Los Angeles in the past three years, and suddenly he's going to everybody's damn improv show. He's just living life because Aaliyah hat's helping him. So that's great. Why isn't that, you know, a model for a productive relationship? I am happy for Brad Pitt. Really getting out there. Yeah, that's that's nice. We're taking advantage of Los Angeles, you know? He's doing more than I am.
0: So, <laughs> he's finally getting out there. We, I think we've discussed how sad it is that he can't leave the house. So yeah. I'm thrilled that he is. But he's at a
1: celebrity-dense... Environment, which is the Kanye Opera. I also just have to note, based on these photos, got a new hat. Brad yeah. Pitt has a new hat. It is not a newsboy hat. It's more of a. I. What are we calling this? It's. It's an unstructured fedora. How's that?
0: Yeah, I think that's with, right. With this- I also just want to say, disappointing that he's so deeply committed to the Kanye West spiritual journey. Well. Uh- oh,
1: There's a little bit of, like, at least he's curious about... I felt guilty. I didn't feel guilty. There wasn't a chance in hell that I was not going to go see, like, Kanye West, quote, opera, which was not an opera. But Kanye is, like, creating something. Did your husband go? He did not. And we were just like, huh, isn't that weird that 10 years ago we definitely would have, like, camped out for a a week in order to go to this? Yeah. Zach, Zach would have. I never would camp out. Let me just be very clear on that. But... And we were just like, uh, no thanks. We're not going to go. But I think, you know, Brad Pitt is still just like artist got an artist, you know? And I don't have— He's a more giving soul. Right. I don't
0: have a lot of personal patience for that. But Brad Pitt does. And that's what I like about him. He's just a great guy. But just in conclusion, not dating Alia Shackett. Yeah. There we go.
1: (laughs) Okay. I think it's time for us to move on. Oh, my gosh. It's so exciting. Jane Bonda. My life so far. This is a really heavy book, like actually physically really heavy. It's 533 pages.
0: It's quite long. It is filled with some photos that I I was a little confused off in the placement of them. I felt like it was like giving stuff away. But then on the other hand, Jane Fonda is so famous that they probably assume like people knew all of this stuff. I'm curious, Amanda, how much you felt you knew about Jane Fonda.
1: I really realized that I knew like the the title chapters. I just want to correct. It's 579 pages. I forgot the epilogue. I'm so sorry. Hmm. But she has... No problem. She gives chapter titles that are... They're pretty... They're descriptive. We have things like Vadim, Barbarella, Clute, Hanoi. We'll talk about that one again. The Workout, On Golden Pond. You know, I... Ted. So I recognize, like, the proper nouns... And sure. I kind of know the basics, and I've seen a few Jane Fonda films, and I am familiar with the workout. And also, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, when Jane Fonda was married to Ted Turner. And she would be at a lot of the Braves games when the Braves were actually good, and we won the World Series in 1995, which was is in this book. Jane was really excited about it. So I kind of feel like I knew... Not even a Wikipedia page, but just kind of like a, a basic arc, but almost nothing substantive.
0: Yeah, because I, like, knew about the Jane Fonda workout. I knew about Peter Fonda. I, like, vaguely knew that her father was named Henry Fonda, but she refers to him as Hank, which I'm sure most of his friends did. And I was like, who? And I, like, I just, it was very fuzzy. And learning the specifics of her life was really fascinating. And let's just, let's just talk about the Vietnam stuff, because... She devotes like probably the largest. I mean, it's a really long book, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. devoted to her. Her and the the occasion for her to write this book is she feels that her life really began at sixty, and she wrote it, started writing it, I think, when she was sixty two, and then took her five years. And she felt that like the her third act was her six was beginning with her sixties, because uh, each act's thirty years, and so six hundred pages for sixty years. But she really commits a lot to her activism. Obviously, I think that she had a lot she wanted to say about that. I felt like it was an interesting way for an unreliable narrator to, like, recount the Vietnam War, which I hadn't really thought about in a while, but I was like, oh, right, all of this stuff. And, like, you have to take it with a grain of salt, right? Because it's very clear, this book, she, throughout all of it, she is trying to both explain and justify and I think she probably would take issue with me saying she was justifying things. But she definitely tries really hard to justify some of her decisions related to the Vietnam War, which I found annoying because it was like she hadn't learned her own lessons. But at the same time, like I like I also learned a lot. Yes, I think I
1: texted you the Vietnam section is a wild ride. Which, which she also I said. Think, she, yeah. she said buckle up. <laughs> yeah. And I, I agree that it's completely fascinating. You know, my take on... Both the Vietnam section and this book, more generally, is like there is a reason that we um, we have journalism and documentaries and therapists and a third party uh, institutions and individuals to help us make meaning of our lives because there is a limitation to what one person can do, even one person who's really trying to understand both themselves and the life that they've lived, which I, Jane Fond is definitely doing. You're right in the Vietnam section she's going day by day to refute either what's in her uh what's been written about her in the press which I think you know was probably not 100% t- true all of yeah. the time to be fair um uh, what I knew about Jane Fonda in Vietnam beforehand was Hanoi Jane I just knew that phrase and Same. I w- I knew the image of her mugshot which I thought was really interesting you mentioned the photos that are interspersed throughout the book and I Never mind, I just like it on a basic level because normally in a book like this, people just put the photos in the middle all yeah. at once. And you got to keep flipping back and forth if you want the illustration. But it was also really interesting to me how much I knew of Jane Fonda visually. Yeah, totally. I just recognized like, oh, you know, I, I don't think I've seen Barbarella actually. or I've seen part of it on YouTube, but I recognize the image and I recognize the haircuts. And she do- talks a lot about what being a movie star and a sex symbol and her own image has uh, meant to her or uh, cost her throughout the years, but it was it was funny that my knowledge of her in Vietnam was basically an image, which because also it is one image in Vietnam that gets her into the most trouble, which is when she decides to pose for a photograph on a uh, North Vietnamese, I believe it's a is like, it a, you know, gun? Like a gun, yeah. yeah, yeah, and she says multiple times it's the single greatest regret that she has in her life, and she knows that it was wrong. And it's so interesting the way she starts the Vietnam section, which is before she gets into Vietnam, there's like a two-page, like, listen, let's hit pause, because I want to tell you what's coming is both—it's a wild ride, and it's also someone who didn't know what she was doing at the time and had decent intentions but made a lot of mistakes and said things the wrong way. And I look back at it, and I feel— like I would like to tell myself different things, and she's she doesn't regret it, but even she is trying to couch it in this was an interesting time.
0: I think that yeah, she's just basically I was misunderstood is, yeah. is sort of, and she also takes a lot of a lot of words to make it clear that her rights were violated by the government and how they. Um, investigated her. And one thing that I learned is that she knows about how they, the extent to which they were watching her because she did a FOIA on herself, which I find incredible, which is the Freedom of Information Act, which was it became a law after Nixon and the Watergate scandal, which is basically like government documents. You can request them. Sometimes they're, they're redacted and whatnot. But she found out there was like 10,000 pages of documents about her from when she was an activist and I, I was like really she's there's a lot of things that are very um criticizable and a lot that we will criticize about Jane Fonda but I found her gumption and her willingness to like do stuff and throw herself into things whether it's something you support or not whether it's a marriage she should have pursued or not like honestly incredibly charming I just like she is such a like type of character that I don't really think exists as much anymore. And I found it kind of, like, thrilling to go along on this ride with her, even as she was, like, clearly justifying some very poor decisions. Uh, Which is not to say I I don't agree with everything, obviously, and, like, the Vietnam stuff is obviously so complicated. Like, I think we can kind of, like, leave it. But I just was, like, so... I was so enthralled and I found I found this book like invigorating like even just going over all of her mistakes I was like god this this bitch she really did that and <laughs> I really like, loved it. It's a that's a really great
1: summary and I agree I think you and I were both like especially in the first 200 pages just so invigorated by this just because Holy shit, the amount of things that she has done and life that she has lived is really extraordinary. It's she and she does, she just kind of throws herself into things and winds up married to someone and living in France or winds yeah. up in North Vietnam or winds up in a uh, being a workout maven or winds up marrying Ted Turner and all of the stories, it is kind of fascinating to me. Like, all of the stories have those qualities of her just being like, Well, I was really drawn to this, and suddenly I was a part of it, which I don't, is not an impulse I have or understand, but am so fascinated by, and also results in someone being able to tell you about so many experiences. She's had so many lives that you and I, it's safe to say, will never have.
0: And then, yeah, so it's, like, all this heavy stuff, like, her mom committing suicide, which is really sad. That's kind of, like, the foundational event in her life. And there's also...
1: yeah, I was gonna say that and her dad.
0: Yeah. We'll talk about the really sad stuff in a second, but I I just want to say, like, she talked about all the sad and really intense stuff, Vietnam, her parents, but then she also devotes, like, one full page to, like, just how charming Robert Redford is. And, like... Who among us isn't like, yes, he is so charming. And I loved I loved reading about someone who was like up close and personal with it. And like, she also talked about her friendship with Donald Sutherland. And she literally knew every famous person from 1940 to the present. Like, everyone remotely famous and noteworthy somehow passed through Jane yeah. Fonda's life over the last
1: 70 years. Even earlier, it's so funny. As soon as I read the Robert Redford page, I immediately thought of you. I knew that would just be your Juliet catnip. I also <laughs> I took a I picture also, of the page. I also love Robert Redford. I it was so delightful. Um, no, it has that you know Henry Fonda was like a major American actor of like the very of early Hollywood, and so and she grew up like in the bowels of actual old school Hollywood. So she's talking about her childhood, or she's talking about a party she throws, and then like George Cukor like is suddenly there in line at the Fourth of July party, and she's known, you know, directors and actors for eons. And it does have that kind of casual tossed off. She'll just, like, name drop... You know, not Catherine Hepburn, but basically everyone but Catherine Hepburn. It seemed like she was best friends with. Yeah, she obviously meets Catherine Hepburn on Old Golden Pond, which is a fascinating chapter and the the mini portrait of Catherine Hepburn in this book, where she's just like, I didn't know what to do with this bird. She's really <laughs> intense. Uh, it's just like she definitely cares about her image and was giving me line reading notes. Amazing, amazing stuff. But it is filled with all of those nuggets of people she knows, and not just Hollywood, because she winds up in the anti-war movement and she winds up in Paris for a while um, with her first husband, a Roger Vadim. A long time, Vadim. yeah. Can, I, can we just, one of the all-time details in this, I just couldn't believe this, was that I believe Roger Vadim wrote uh, several memoirs, but one of them is literally, the title of it is Bardot de Neuve Fonda absolutely incredible only and a frenchman a, <laughs> only a frenchman would do that
0: and jane fonda also quotes it pretty lovingly yes she, like, i think she was thrilled the thing is one thing you've just have to you, you realize though she though she tries to throw you off the scent for about 200 pages at the end of the day jane fonda is a celebrity and actress who loves attention
1: and yes, it's and, 100% true and, and
0: You're like, oh my God, she's such a substantive, wonderful person. She is very substantive, maybe wonderful. I don't really know. But you're also like, yeah, she's an actress. Like, Mm -hmm. she's just always like, do I want to be an actress? Do I not want to be an actress? At the end of the day, she always decides she wants to be an actress. And I think that's just like, you can't escape it. Yeah, and she has, it's both the, um, she has reflected on the
1: experience of herself and has basically created an entire 600-page book dedicated to exploring herself, but also that impulse of just inserting yourself into every situation. It's how she winds up living this life that she gets to write about at great length, but An actor or an actress has an impulse that I don't have where it's like, oh, I could be that person. Oh, I could do that. Oh, I would love to be a part of all of these situations. Yeah. And that certainly served her in career. I think she's actually a a very fine movie actress, but also definitely creates all of the other absolutely ridiculous situations that she gets herself into. Can we talk briefly just about... The number of times that she sells beautiful homes that she owns because, like, a man asks her to. It's so upsetting. I have so much anxiety. Well, also, I actually think it speaks maybe the most well of Jane Fonda of anything in this book. She is clearly, you know, and we're, we're getting Jane Fonda's side of this, but she's not particularly materialistic because she'll... Any guy who's like, I want to live here instead, she's like, okay, I'll sell my beautiful farmhouse. Yeah. I'll sell my Santa Monica house like five times. I I kept I found myself being like, what are you doing about the houses more than anything? Which is a referendum on me and not Jane Fonda, I think. But
0: she's just like, sure, whatever, why not? It it is pretty amazing. I mean, I, I think she also she in a couple of times make it seem like she has to like borrow money or like has some money troubles, but it's like at mm-hmm. two different times in her life. I think ultimately, like when you're that famous and rich your whole life, you don't actually understand those kinds of consequences. So I'm just like, oh, she, that, that was kind of my take on it. Right. And so the book was pretty well received when it came out in 2005, but it did, or 2006, I can't remember. But, um, to the extent it was criticized, it was a lot about just sort of like her lack of, uh, self-awareness essentially. And that Mm -hmm. does, does really come through. Like she refers to like her nannies. And then at one point she has, um, When she's at the peak of her activism for three years, she lives with and has basically someone she calls like her fiduciary advisor, but basically it's like the equivalent of when Britney Spears' father was in charge of her estate, like someone who manages your money so you can't just burn through all of it. And Mm -hmm. like those sort of like, and then she also talks about really lovingly, but talks about her daughter's nanny dot a lot with really not an ounce of self awareness. It's sort of funny that this woman who, like, is working through meeting Black Panthers and travels the country ends up marrying, like, Ted Turner. And, you know, that would be like if Barbara Streisand's character, from the way we were in some ways, like, ended up marrying Ted Turner. You know, it's not quite as pure, but it's just so crazy.
1: It is really funny. I will say, so my one... I I did find myself getting a little fatigued as the book went on with that lack of self-awareness. You know, it's natural when you write a book, especially someone's writing a book later in life, you expect— an arc, you know, we're trained to see both life as an arc and also a memoir is supposed to be like what I've learned. And there is a real repeating of things till the very end, including the Ted Turner section where you're like, what the hell is happening? Now, obviously, even the Ted Turner section is written with the hindsight of their marriage being over. So she's narrating it to her needs as well. But, you know, on the one hand, I got really frustrated. On the other hand, I think it is probably truer to life that people just keep making the same choices and often mistakes yeah. and are who they are and see the things that they see and don't see the things that they don't see. But I, I guess it's just because it's a 600-page book that I expected there to be some sort of—I guess there's ultimately some growth. I I certainly think—you um, want to talk about the feminism for a bit? Yes, I'd love to.
0: I'd love okay. to. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Katherine Hepburn situation because I felt like I do think she comes to a pretty interesting type of feminism, which to me was pretty textbook second wave feminism, though she takes a long time to get there. However, she doesn't really have women in her life who don't work for her in some way that she's really close with. Like they're yeah. either mentors and advisors or they work for her, but she doesn't really have clear female friends, even like Faye Dunaway, who she refers to as a friend. I'm just like, what was your friendship, actually? And I found that upsetting. That bothered me as someone who really values female friendship. And I think it's a really, like, it's the type of second wave feminism that is often criticized now because it's not particularly, you know, I, I think she lands on as long as I live certain principles, like, it's okay for me to also, like, have... A giant ranch and whatever and she's like you know environmentalist but I'm also like her carbon footprint is like huge and there's just a level of hypocrisy in her feminism that I think is a little bit frustrating but on the other hand I also found really exciting like I was just like this is someone who has like a personal code and she lives by it And like you can object to pieces of it but she she has a sense of what she thinks is right is wrong as particularly as it relates to women and their empowerment and I thought that was like kind of exciting I found it
1: really bracingly honest in a way that I I think, honestly, even sometimes Jane Fonda didn't mean for it to be. Mm -hmm. It is really interesting. She quotes her diaries from the 60s when she is becoming involved in certain parts of the activism. And there's a quote from, I I think it's like 1968, where she's like, I don't understand the women's movement. We've got bigger issues. Yes, exactly. Um, And
0: she shared that almost to be like, look how far I've gone.
1: Right. And so she is tracking her political sense of womanhood throughout the book and and gets to a different place from where she did in the 60s and you know so i think it's really interesting to watch someone evolve in that way and you know you also think about like you and i live in a world where feminism has always existed but right. when she was born it like it literally didn't it's so it's it's always really interesting to, for me to see how different generations and generations who have experienced way different situations evolve on it i think the thing that's really fascinating um, and kind of unsettling but also really honest in this book is how she talks about her personal concept of what a woman should be and how she was afraid of being a woman for a long time because I think – and I, some of this is kind of like primal mom and dad stuff. I think she has some real unresolved issues with her father in terms of just not feeling loved by her father and obviously yeah. her mother died by suicide when she was at a young age and – all of the here's what I understood women to be, like had a deep, deep uh, flavor of therapy to me. You know, this is a this is someone yes, who's absolutely. been working a lot and reading a lot of like sociological
0: texts and trying to understand and she, how And she says that that she yeah, read a lot of psychology to understand things.
1: Yeah, and so and has done a lot to try to understand her experiences and how her childhood and also her marriages, which she becomes completely subsumed by, like three times at least in her telling in retrospect, which, again, this is this is one person's story. I find them to be upsetting at times, but really, really interesting because you don't hear people speaking that candidly about how they understand their own personhood and womanhood. You know, you and I and, like, our generation is raised to just be like, women can do everything, right. you know? Yeah. Um, and there's no sense of doubt or fear. And... I, I I found it startling to read, which is good, right? You're looking yeah, for a reaction. Yeah, it, So,
0: And I also think that, like, she's political, but she's not politically correct. And really? I also really appreciated that. Like, I, I think that the—do you think this book would be more kindly or harshly um, received if it were released tomorrow? Harshly. Because I I, I agree with that. Like, I think that, like, some of her blind spots, she would just be crucified for. Um, Yes. Because of how feminism has evolved. But I don't think it evolves without women like Jane Fonda. And... I'm okay with that, but I also say that as like another white woman of privilege. And and she really right. comes across as like a white woman of privilege ultimately at the end of the book. And I I read this gleefully. Like I, I truly enjoyed this book. I recommended it a lot. I think it is both an artifact of a type of person and a type of celebrity that we might not get again. And like that's really cool to me and, and exciting. And I, I was describing this to a friend as a high-end, extremely long version of, like, an Us Weekly tell-all. And, like, that's that's great. That's what I want from a book.
1: (laughs) It really is. I mean, it is really juicy in addition to having, like, Extremely long, you know, one-sided and and p- please do other reading about the Vietnam War if you read this book, but it just has like one hundred and fifty pages about the Vietnam War. Yeah. and it's it's certainly about like one woman's role in the Vietnam War, and it's the same woman who's writing it. So and she probably gives herself way too much credit for
0: her role, yeah, in the Vietnam War. i I
1: can't i I do not feel that at Hanoi Jane or even this section, this retelling would go super well republished today. But I, it's also there's so much sociological stuff in here. She really talks a lot about her activism and the work she's done for women and for veterans and for all of the other situations that she just kind of finds herself in. So it's, it's definitely fascinating. It just, we don't the quote discourse or whatever today doesn't allow enough nuance or context honestly yeah, this this right. book lacks context this is just one woman talking and it and one woman who has gotten herself in a lot of scrapes and also experienced a lot of things and was born into a very interesting life sharing her story and i think that's fascinating but i you know if you have to put it to everyone it can't stand on its own in the same way yeah. i kind of in 2019 if that makes sense yeah
0: I've really enjoyed it. I, I'd recommend this book, but, like, with caveats. Like, you can't just be like, this yeah. is, like, a great tale of, of of an American life. Like, this is, you know, I mean, you can, but I just think that it's, there's levels to enjoying it, but, like in and, like, on the most surface, it was a really engrossing read, but it also just is, like, a really interesting type of celebrity. Like, she also, the stuff about Lee Strasberg was really interesting and how she found being a star in Lee Strasberg's. Acting classes, like, kind of, like, gave her the confidence she needed to feel like she was legit in her career. And, like, that kind of stuff is really interesting. And, you know, it was just fascinating. Like, it's interesting to think, like, could one of Demi Moore's daughters, like, write a book like this in 40 years, you know? Like, will the children of celebrities, like, think to do this kind of thing? And will they be activists and whatnot? And it's just really fascinating.
1: The only thing that—with all respect to Demi Moore's daughters, who seem like wonderful people, but none of them have— establish themselves as actors or activists or we didn't even talk about the workout stuff. Oh, my goodness. Which is just like a fascinating detour when she starts the workout company in order to pay for her second husband's and hers, I should say, their activism or their Senate campaign. It's basically started as a, not a front, but an income source for activism. And as a result, this is Jane's retelling. And this is one of these things where I'm just like I'm going to need I'm going to need, need an some more sources <laughs> because she gets the idea from taking classes from someone in Century City, a woman named Lenny, okay? And she's like what we should do is Lenny and I should turn this into a class where people can come. And then according to Jane's retelling, Because the purpose of the business is to fund Jane and Tom's activist work, it needs to be in the name of the corporation or or the activism whatever, which means that Lenny gets cut out of the business. So the woman who devised the method that inspired Jane gets cut out of the business and then Jane becomes a star. And Jane's like, I feel really bad about that now. But activism, you know? Yeah. And you're just like, ma'am, you stole someone's entire business and then put your face on it and became this single most successful home selling video of all time. And she's just like, well, Lenny and I are friends now, so it's okay. And I'm like, was there any financial restitution?
0: Yeah. And that's when you're like this bitch. Like, can you believe this bitch did that? Like, it's just insane. And she doesn't have any like self-awareness. At one point, she's like, I feel really bad
1: that Lenny isn't more well-known. I'm just like, hello, you devoted four pages and 600 to this person. You could have put her name on the damn thing. And, you know, it's true that Jane Fonda is famous and that Jane Fonda has a certain presence and people are buying the video because of Jane Fonda as much as they are for the method. right? Even though it does kind of revolutionize how women work out or, you know, this concept of working out at home. Jane presents it as, like, an empowering thing as opposed to some uh, tough body image standards, which... I
0: Which I is think. another place where you're just like, come on, yeah, Because she spends right. a lot of time, which I appreciated, on her bulimia, which I did yes. not know about. And not just bulimia, anorexia, just eating disorders in general. And she's very matter-of-fact about eating disorders, which I also really appreciated. I feel like in some ways, maybe I'm just not around teen girls anymore, but I feel like... Anorexia and eating disorders were like a real, were like discussed a lot and like were like a big deal when we were growing up. But I'm like, are they still like? I don't feel like this is like a talking point anymore. And I actually appreciated it. I think they absolutely still are. I just think
1: that like in the the 80s is the first time that they were named or discussed. Mm. You know, it's the same way that like Princess Diana having bulimia was such a big deal because like literally no one talked about it before, right? And I think Jane Fonda is a part of that as well. And so it's her going through the process of from like. not even knowing—I mean, I think she knows what she's doing is something shameful and that— or she feels that it's shameful and she doesn't want to share it with other people from them getting to a point where now she knows all the statistics and can kind of talk about eating disorders and our relationship to food more generally. But the workout she presents is more like, you know, this women learn to feel better about themselves, which I think is definitely possible and is— at why people should work out. You should work out because you want to be healthy and feel good about yourself, not to look any given way. But I I was young in the 80s, but like I know what I remember of Jane Fonda's workout and it wasn't like uh empowerment. It's the
0: it's the Leotards. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah. And she looked great. <laughs> yeah. She, she really did look great. It's just yeah. a real it's just a really fascinating read. And it's just it's honestly fun. I'm sorry, but I found it fun. I don't know why I feel like I have to apologize. Oh! No, it's totally
1: fun. I think, like, I definitely was reading it, and similar to you, I was just like telling everyone that I saw or had dinner with, like, "Let me tell you what I just learned about Jane Fonda. Can you believe it?" Which is, which is what we want from these things. Yeah. You know, we have the ability to provide context, and we don't have to. We can, we can add our our own intelligence to it. Not that, not that this is not unintelligent. I do think Jane Fonda is quite uh, intelligent. It's sort of like an unshaped intelligence at times, but um, she's. Sh- it's
0: a mind at work. You Word. know? Yeah. That's a that's a great way of putting it. It really it's true. And she's trying to like make sense of her life and like me too. You know? I get it, Jane. Yeah. Yeah. I'm only in the middle of my se- I'm I'm at the beginning of my second act, which also by the way made me feel great about my age. I was like, "God, Jane Fonda makes it seem like I have so much life left. This is wonderful." That's true. And I should also just say, reading this while Jane
1: Fonda is still getting arrested on yes. an almost weekly basis in order to protest for climate change, which is going to affect me a lot more than it affects Jane Fonda, uh, with all respect to Jane Fonda, who's now 82 years old, I she's doing something. You know, I, I really, really admire it. And I don't know reading this book that I would have foreseen that is the outcome of someone at 82 still going for it. But she really is. She's going for it. And... It's exciting.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And also she yeah. um, she says in the book, she explains that she just, like, loves the outdoors and, like, she loves the land. And she, like, um, admires Native Americans for their connection to the land. And so, like, when you read that, you're like, oh, this makes sense, this activism. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that I did really connect with was that—or not connect with, but admired—is that the causes she fights for, it's because she just, like— feel something so deeply that it does stuff to her, like deprive Lenny of the glory of the right. workout, you know? But it, like yeah. in her head, it's like there's a reason to do so. And yes, it's like crazy myopia and solipsism, but mm-hmm. it also results in some pretty impressive uh, output.
1: Yeah. You know, there is a inherent skill to an actor of imagining yourself as someone else. And I think we often see that as self-indulgent and I think that a lot of it like is self-indulgent, but there is also an ability to to live someone else's experience and to that keeps a lot of us it holds me back. certainly I'm just trying to take care of myself all the time and it's it's very hard to imagine yourself, and to imagine other people's experiences as vitally as yours in a way that would make you want to do something about it. And I think that does seem to be what animates a lot of Jane Fonda's activism, Activism, and I do really admire it. It's channeled in interesting ways sometimes, but it's an openness um, that has her still, still doing stuff.
0: That's a great note. Jade yeah. Vonda, thank you for this book. We will continue to be reading about you.
1: Um, <laughs> we will. I don't know if we're going to be able to find a book, Is like, I don't think there's another 600 page celebrity memoir out there. Do you think? I don't
0: know. Well, have you read Becoming by Michelle Obama? I haven't. Should we do that? I think we should, but um, you okay. suggested the Princess Margaret biography. I think we should do that first.
1: Okay. So it, that is like kind of a biography. It's called 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret and it's an interesting one because it's both like a it's like a textual experiment it's a it's critiquing the idea of a celebrity biography while also writing about princess margaret so i felt like it would be relevant to your interests yeah let's do it have you read it yeah i read it but i would love to reread it you know i'll read, reread these things a million times and then yeah we could do that for december and then maybe becoming as like a new like start the year
0: New year, new us. That's a great idea, Michelle. Okay, we're coming for you in January. Sounds great. Uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a gift guide, jam session gift guide for jam for your session gift needs. guide. Really excited about it. Should we surprise each other with our choices?
1: Yeah, I'm taking this really seriously, by the way. Just so you know. Okay, I would. Expect I mean, I have a lot of. Else. I have a lot of plane flights coming up in the next few days, and what I'm going to be doing is uh, putting together a ridiculous but intentional gift guide. I can't wait to uh, find out about your intentionality. (laughs) Okay, thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. We will be back next week. Happy Thanksgiving.